emperor of all the Russias, Paul I, is a strange combination of tyrant, coward, weakling, and madman. He is feared and hated by his subjects whose resentment and bitterness are inward and without visible protest. But even as Paul creates terror and woe in the hearts of his subjects, so does Paul himself live in constant dread and fear of those subjects. He is harassed by suspicion and doubt, afraid to even eat, drink, or sleep. He fears he will meet the end that had been the fate of some of his ancestors. There is only one living soul in whom Paul places any trust, and that only at intervals. He is the Prime Minister, Count Palen, who has won a powerful influence in the Empire by virtue of this trust. He can handle the Tsar like a child. His position is unapproachable, save only by the Tsar himself. Count Palen is in love with the Countess Osterman, wife of an army officer. They are surprised by the husband. He picks up one of Palen's boots to throw at a window, but is the victim of a Cossack bullet. One of the Tsar's edicts is that no one shall present himself at a window when he rides by. The Tsar and his Cossack guard had just passed. Palen, the patriot, pitying the Tsar, is at the same time bleeding for his suffering country. He determines to use his love, the Countess, as a pawn to lure the Tsar into a game of death. At St. Michael, built as a murder-proof castle by Paul, the Tsar is more concerned with the number of buttons on the gaiters of Stefan than with matters of international importance. He whips Stefan for not having enough buttons. Stefan suffers in silence. Helen arrives, and after an audience with the Tsar, sees Stefan. He presses the soldier into service as his personal bodyguard, promising Stefan revenge. He also outlines plans of dethroning of the monarch to court attaches. Alexander, the crown prince, is an idealist with a yearning towards his father, and Palen's proposition shocks and horrifies him. When Palen realizes that his plea to the young man has been in vain, he determines to take drastic steps and warn the Tsar against Alexander. The Tsar has no love for his son, for he knows the attitude of his subjects towards the crown prince. They love him. Paul, therefore, immediately places his son under arrest. Palen's next step is to surround himself with his faithful followers and outline his plan minutely, whereby the Tsar will be pressed for his abdication, and failing in this, he is to be assassinated, thus clearing the way for Alexander's being placed on the throne. On the day of the night the plan is to materialize, Paul suddenly decides to leave the city with Lapukin, his mistress. This will upset the plans, and in desperation, Palen manages to put the Tsar in contact with the snuffbox, which he, Palen, owns. In this snuffbox, hidden by a secret lid, there is an alluring likeness of the Countess Osterman, Palen's love. The Tsar becomes excited and calls off the trip. He must meet the Countess. Palen arranges this and ingeniously manages to leave the Countess alone with the Tsar. He clumsily makes love to her. The Countess, outraged with her betrayal by Palen, discloses the minister's plans to the Tsar. The Count is summoned, and he explains that he has been in the service of the conspirators to learn of their plans. He pledges his life for the Tsar's life. Paul is satisfied and retires to his quarters. Later that night, while the Tsar sleeps fitfully, his officers appear. They gain entrance to his bedroom. He shrieks in fear and calls for Palen. 
The Count waits outside weeping. The officers are subdued for the moment by the Tsar's dramatic plea. I am the Tsar, by divine right! Then from behind appears Stefan. He rushes up to the Tsar. And presently, the Tsar is dead. While the bells toll ominously outside, and the peasants hail their new Tsar, Helen and Stefan face each other in Helen's home. Stefan holds a pistol. As the clock strikes the hour, a shot rings out. Helen is mortally wounded. At this moment, the Countess appears. She embraces Helen. He turns to her and says, I have been a bad friend and lover, but I have been a patriot. With these words, the Patriot falls dead. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It is 1928, and David Cairns joins us to discuss The Patriot, as well as selected works by Joseph von Sternberg. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Welcome, everyone. What you just heard was the synopsis of The Patriot as printed in the Paramount Pressbook for the film, which, alongside the film's trailer, which you can find in the show notes, represents the most complete document we have of what the film might have looked like. Because, of course, The Patriot has been lost for around seven decades. And David Cairns is back with me to pick up the pieces. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and this is the rare episode where the idea was pitched to me. You know, most of the episodes pitch themselves. It's you got to do an episode on every surviving film. But in this case, you had the great idea of doing an episode on The Patriot. Then we were discussing basically incorporating von Sternberg in there because one or more of his films have some very close connections to The Patriot and also to Lubitsch in general. I mean, I'm specifically referring to The Scarlet Empress and The Last Command. But there are so many links between the two directors being significant figures at Paramount. Yes, tied closely together. At Lubitsch's running Paramount also at the time of The Devil is a Woman. So he's responsible maybe for the title of that film, which mm-hmm. Sternberg wanted to call Capriccio Espanol, <laughs> which was never going to fly. Uh, <laughs> and he may have supervised the edit with Sternberg having possibly stormed off. Not sure, but he seems to have had his fingers in the pie. One of the good sources here is Sternberg's memoir, Fun in a Chinese Laundry. I think he says I liked him, but I was careful not to let him know that. Which is <laughs> a fantastically typical perverse Sternbergism. It's like, why would you not want the boss to know that you liked him? You have to keep that secret. We can get more into their increasingly rocky relationship. You know, Sternberg, yeah, would later develop a bit of a complex about Lubitsch, right? Where he kind of felt Lubitsch was almost staging a campaign to discredit him. Yeah, which I wouldn't have thought Lubitsch would do necessarily. Also, I think Sternberg was perfectly capable of staging (laughs) his own campaign of self-discreditation. Yeah, I won't bury the lead here. Von Sternberg seems like a miserable bastard. (laughs) Everything you read, his memoir is very venomous and full of score settling. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody seemed to like him except himself. Even he didn't seem to like himself. But 
fascinating character, but let's start with the Patriot because to kind of explain why we're doing this wacky episode, the Patriot is Ernst Lubitsch's 1928 film starring Emil Yannings. It's their last work together and it was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture. And that is relevant because it is the only Oscar nominee for Best Picture to be a fully lost film. Now, it is not fully lost. It is just mostly lost. As you mentioned in our prelude, David, there are ostensibly 2,500 feet of the 10,000 feet in the UCLA Film Archive. There is a trailer surviving. And most importantly, snippets of it, especially wide crowd shots, were reused by von Sternberg, you know, Ed Wood style in The Scarlet Empress. These two films are tied together. There's a great anecdote. I'll finish my rant with this anecdote where upon screening The Scarlet Empress, Lubitsch, according to Sternberg, criticized Sternberg for wasting all the money on the big crowd shots. And Sternberg felt very smug about the fact that it was Lubitsch not recognizing his own crowd shots. Yes. And one could imagine, again, Sternberg thinking, well, I could get out of trouble here by saying this is stock footage. And of course, he wouldn't do that because Sternberg is not interested in getting out of trouble. And I think he has a self-destructive side, a masochistic side, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of weird stuff going on with Sternberg. Mm-hmm. And he's so unlike Lubitsch that it's interesting that they collaborated in a, you know two or three different capacities. One can't imagine them really getting along. Lubitsch seems like a man who likes to have fun. <laughs> Sternberg maybe like to have fun, but it would certainly be a peculiar kind of fun and somebody would be suffering. <laughs> so yeah, we can see little bits of the Patriot. We can see the trailer. There's also supposed to be a real surviving found in Portugal. So that could mean like a third of it's in existence. Yeah. Yeah, but we're not able to see it. Maybe if I were in LA, you say LA would allow me to screen it if I came up with some kind of story. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I'm now wishing I was actually just in LA recording for the show last month. I wish I had knocked on the UCLA's door and demanded to see their surviving quarter of the Patriot. Yeah. I do wonder how screenable that quarter would be. Yeah, probably nitrate. Have you read the IMDb reviews? No, I haven't. Has your colleague acquaintance reviewed it? I think so. Well, here's the thing. You go to the IMDb reviews and it says there were three, but there are only two. And uh, one of them features the line, for heaven's sake, save this copy before it's too late. And it's not clear what that's talking about. So what that's talking about, I think, is a deleted review by a guy called F. Gwynplaine McIntyre, a.k.a. Froggy, whose thing was to write reviews on the IMDb of lost films, which just seems to be a sort of hobby of his. Mm -hmm. And he would pretend that he had seen these films. Maybe he'd seen some of them. And you would have elaborate stories about why they were not known to exist and why the collectors were keeping them secret. But he was definitely making up most of it. Huh. Occasionally, I've been able to catch him out in saying things that are not true of the films. He'd do his research, but he wouldn't read everything. So you'd sometimes find, wait a minute, that's not on. So you just seem to get some kind of perverse, perhaps Sternbergian satisfaction out of pretending to have seen these films that nobody else could. And he was a complete fictional character. He had invented his name. He had invented his backstory, he claimed to be English. He put on an English accent, <laughs> Com- complete fantasist. And I'm not, I had some email contact with him because I wanted to see these films. I thought at first that they existed and that he had indeed seen them. Never got anywhere, but he was friendly and he spun me all these stories. Like, did he really have webbed feet? You know, he claimed to have been raised in Australia and to have run away from a children's home and been dressed as a girl by a woman who disguised him to keep him away from the welfare officers, all of which is untrue. Then he apparently assaulted his landlady, tied her to a chair, shaved her head and spray painted her or something like this. And then he committed suicide by burning his apartment down. 
So, that, you know, it's a slippery slope. You start with fake reviews on the IMDb and before you know it, you're committing bizarre assaults on <laughs> landladies and setting fire to the premises. <laughs> a warning to us all. Keep the reviews honest. Don't start down the lost film path. So we're definitely not going to review The Patriot here because we have not seen it. I wouldn't mind reviewing Mel Gibson's The Patriot, which I also haven't seen. I could do oh, a review well, of that. You're in for a treat. That film, I've never seen a film that hates the English as much as that film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bloodthirsty work. So what we can do, though, is we can review the synopsis and especially the trailer. What you heard at the beginning of the show, audience, if I will do my job ADRing this, is I have hired a very talented voice actor, I hope, to read the entire press kit synopsis. And we also have the trailer, which is a really valuable document because it tells us a number of things. I'd like to give the floor to you to this, David. What can we learn from the trailer? What's in it from the visuals to the title cards? There's lots in it of genuine interest. And it says things like, this theater has the honor to present the perfect motion picture. Yes. The Patriot, our masterpiece. We can see from this that there are uncharacteristically huge sets, uncharacteristic for Hollywood Lubitsch. It seems more like his German films. Yeah. There's the world's greatest dramatic star. Emily Jennings drops in like a Terry Gilliam cartoon. Emily Jennings in his most distinguished role. There's violent camera movement. There's cameras rushing around and in on Emil's big, scary face. It's a real grotesque performance by Jennings, who, of course, we sort of expect that from. So he's playing a mad emperor. So, you know, that stops are designed to be left out in such a scenario. Superbly directed by the master producer, Ernst Lubitsch. Lovely art title cards. Yanning's cringing in a nightgown. He's tormented by phantoms, possibly. Oh, yes, he smashes a mirror with spectacular sound effects. You hear as well as see. <laughs> I love it. That's the prompt for the sound effects is the smashing of the mirror. I love that. It's like, look at what you're missing. Yeah. So the reviews from the period state that the synchronization is atrocious. They say that generally the side effects don't help the film. But they give you a list of the sound effects in title card form. Yanning's agonized roar, <laughs> the wild Cossack riders, death-dealing musketry, <laughs> magnificent symphonic music score, mighty Russian choruses, as real as life, and <laughs> ten times more thrilling. The critics did like the music. That got some good reviews. But yeah, a marvelous all-star supporting cast. Yeah, and you have what, Florence Vidor, Louis Stone, Neil Hamilton, along with Yanning's. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a great Neil Hamilton or Lewis Stone fan particularly, but it would be very interesting to see what Lubitsch did with them because he did bring out the entertaining side in otherwise not the most interesting actors, but they'd always be, you know, good for him. So I'm curious to see what he could bring out of these sort of grumpy, grudging kind of actors. The three elements of the trailer that really stick out to me are, the first is the fact that, I mean, this is a momentous occasion. This is Lubitsch's first foray into sound. I mean, The Love Parade is, you look up IMDb or Wikipedia, Love Parade is his first sound film, but it's really his first talking film with synchronized, direct recorded sound. This film and Eternal Love both feature essentially designed soundscapes, really rudimentary ones. Yeah. You can actually hear the one in Eternal Love because that film survives, unlike this one. And in this one, I mean, ostensibly, yeah, we're going to hear certain sound effects along Inside a pre-recorded orchestra. I mean, the quality would not have been good. You're going from live. If you were going to see this film in a gala premiere a year earlier, you'd have a live orchestra. Now you have a tinny orchestra that sounds like, you know, it's playing over the sound of eggs frying. That's what Eric Dinesfried in a later episode that I've already recorded characterized that sound as. And second, you have a lot of camera movement. And this seems to be on the kind of a continuum between Student Prince, which featured a surprising amount of camera movement, and Eternal Love, which might be his single most camera movement e film up until maybe The Merry Widow, which was kind of the peak of his pre-code camera movement stylization, where the camera is constantly moving in that movie. It's great. And then you have Emil. 
it seems like a really uncharacteristic performance in terms of what Lubitsch is going for at this time with actors, right? I mean, we're in a different world than Lady Windermere's fan, which really, I shouldn't be surprised because it's Yanning's. But I kind of had this image before I saw the trailer of Yanning's in a bit more of a button-down role, given every other Lubitsch film of this period. But no, he's full-on, like, end of Loves of the Pharaoh, <laughs> flailing his arms madness. It's really interesting. Yeah, well, I guess in silent cinema in particular, if people were going to play mad people, that was a license to go all out. And, you know, Yanning's never needed much license to do that anyway. But yeah, mad emperors are a whole genre of character where rather than them being, you might guess that they're emperors, so that might sort of restrain the madness a little bit. No, that encourages them to go as mad as possible because nobody's going to point it out or criticize it. But yeah, it looks like a really prime cut of ham and uh, <laughs> an important Yannick's performance. And the critics praised him and said, you know, he doesn't resemble anything he's done before. I mean, it's in the school of Yannick's for sure, mm-hmm. but it is a different, he's got a different flavor. I think the quality of the camera moves is distinct in that there's a lot of cameras rushing up to people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the camera seems more sort of violent than we're used to seeing it. Quick shot of Yannings clutching at a necklace that is down a woman's cleavage. That seems a very classic Lubitsch Yannings move. <laughs> it felt almost expressionistic. Lubitsch is never an expressionist, but it felt like the camera moves were there not mm-hmm. just to follow characters around or to explore space or to tell the story, but to create a large scale emotional effect to give us a sense of madness and violence and drama. I do wonder how much of that expressionism can be laid at the feet of, to a certain degree, Burt Glennon. Because okay. Burt Glennon, this is his only collaboration with Lubitsch, as far as I know. And he would later go on to shoot a handful of von Sternberg's films, including, and this film is intimately connected with Lubitsch, The Last Man, where Hans, and Hans Dreyer, you know, the legendary production designer, also worked on both films and, again, was a close collaborator on a lot of Lubitsch's most famous work and virtually all of von Sternberg's Hollywood work. Yeah, well, here's why I don't see Bert Glennon as necessarily pushing this style or bringing it out off Lubitsch. Maybe a little. Bert Glennon also shot several John Ford films. Yes. Which are not in this style. Yeah. Jumps along the Mohawk is not very expressionist, no. (laughs) Yeah. And a young Mr. Lincoln, I think. Stagecoach, yeah. Beautiful, but not Sternbergian, nor expressionistic. So I think he's the classic Hollywood cinematographer who can adapt his style to what's required of him. You know, most of them can. There's certain cinematographers who have a loop that they do regardless on every film. But most of them were, you know, if they were shooting a musical, they'd shoot it one way. And if they were shooting a noir, they'd shoot it that way. I mean, he's great. And I think Sternberg was asked about him in an interview and just said he was an effective collaborator. wouldn't offer any elaborate compliments <laughs> or anything. He's a notably ungenerous individual when speaking about other people's contributions. But yeah, he's clearly a brilliant cameraman, but I don't think he would have caused Lubitsch to make something in a markedly different style. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's, you know, this is a melodramatic movie with a crazy character at the center of it. And that if that's apparently something Lubitsch wanted to go to town on and uh, have fun with would be my guess. One of the reviews talks, though, and we should mention this, about how despite being this rip-roaring melodrama, the film has moments of comedy, mm-hmm. including the Annings character. Whenever he's bedding down with his girlfriend, they'll cut to the little dog being shoved out of the door. <laughs> so it's a Lubitsch door, and it's very much a classic Lubitsch door, the door behind which Nuki is taking place. So good to know that he was continuing that. 
It really does sound like, I mean, this and Kiss Me Again, the fact that those are lost kills me because if I could like choose to resurrect one, Kiss Me Again, I think maybe has a better chance of standing up. It's a fully one of his typical mid-20s comedies. But The Patriot, I mean, it seems like based on the reviews, he learns maybe some of the lessons of the Madame Dewberries and Anna Boleyns of the world, where it feels like at least his faculty with, you know, bringing in those little light touches that humanize the characters that make it something more than just a dour recounting of semi-accurate history. It seems like he was fully in command of that at this point. And so, you know, it's so tragic we lost it. Yeah. And it's interesting that he doesn't really make this kind of thing again. And there it is. It comes out. The critics love it. It's successful. It's nominated for awards. It's kind of the last sort of blood and thunder historical melodrama that he does, unless I'm forgetting something. He did one more melodrama, and that's Broken Lullaby, but that isn't a historical film or an epic. That's a small chamber piece. Yes, and it's historical, but only in the sense of being set 12 or 15 years in the past. Exactly. Only nominally historical. So yeah, it's a farewell to a particular thing, the historical epic, you know, that helped make his name. But it's an oddity at this point because more of the films around it are the kind of Lubitsch thing that we're familiar with. The fact that it got lost so fast really confounds me too. Within 20 years, it was considered lost. Yeah. And that's rather fast. And the other Yannings film from that time, The Way of All Flesh, is I think lost. And that survives only in a clip that was put into an archival documentary. I don't know if it was a Robert Youngson film or something. There's a some kind of compendium of great movie moments and it has a bit of Yannings being amazing. And that's the only bit that exists, seemingly. It's very strange because this film apparently traveled everywhere, was widely seen. And the fact that a bit of it turned up in Portugal would support that. We can kind of consider ourselves lucky as Lubitsch fans because Sternberg's silent era is even more of a wasteland. Yeah. The crazy thing with Sternberg is that he had several films that were actually condemned to be destroyed deliberately. The Chaplin one, right? The Chaplin one, but most of the others, most of the ones that were condemned to be destroyed survive. The Guardia Seville in Spain were so offended by the devil as a woman. God knows why, because they barely play a role in it. Hmm. They protested it and Paramount was ordered or agreed to burn the negative and all prints. But Prince survived. And then the Nazis wanted to burn the Blue Angel. They wanted to burn the negative of the Blue Angel. And I think Henri Langlois made a deal to hand over. Oh, my gosh. The SS man assigned to the task was a huge Dietrich fan. So he willingly went along with a ploy where Langlois supplied him with some reels of uninteresting travelogue. And that's what was burned. Um, but yes, the Chaplin one is, yeah. And uh, Sternberg's next film, The Case of Lena Smith, there's only 10 minutes of that in existence. Dragnet's Lost, which really bugs me because in The Last Command, I was so blown away by Evelyn Brent's work that I went, oh, so they work together again after this. And no, that film's lost. Yeah. We have Underworld, mm-hmm. which I still have yet to see and I can't wait. But yeah, no, it's they have these gaps. They never stop taunting me. Louise Brooks was funny about Evelyn Brent. She said, I worked with Evelyn Brent. Her idea of acting was to stride into a scene, stand with her feet wide apart and our hands on our hips, you know, just strike a pose. She says Sternberg dressed her in feathers and softened her. And I've seen non-Sternberg Evelyn Brent, where she is kind of shrill and angular and sort of butch. Brooks credited Sternberg with the gift for, you know, assessing an actor and figuring out what to remove off them and what to add in order to make them the complete version of themselves that they need to be. It's interesting because my favorite shot in Last Command is of Evelyn Brent. It's a medium shot with her facing the camera with her 
feet wide apart, hands on her hips, and throwing her head back and laughing and striking a great pose. And that's yeah. like, I thought, that's 10 out of 10. You know, that's some of the best pantomime. You know, there's actually, I mean, I have not been able to confirm this, but I am convinced that Lubitsch worked with her in the film Paramount on Parade, which uh. I don't know if you've seen this one. You know, it's one of the early talky reviews. It's much better than the other review I saw, which is the MGM one from 1929, which is dire. But she and actually uh, Maurice Chevalier have a scene set in Paris where they try to explain by doing it the origin of the French Apache dance. Right. And so they basically have a slapping fight where they gradually disrobe each other and themselves. And then the part where I'm like, okay, Lubitsch directed this is the climax of the fight is a series of inserts of the clothes landing on the ground, a collar on the ground, stockings on the ground, dress on the ground, tuxedo on the ground, and then you cut back to them and obviously that is revealed to have been foreplay and now they're in their evening best going out for the night. Yeah, that sounds like Lubitsch, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And being Chevalier, it seems likely. And I think it's confirmed that he directed some of that, right? His name is mentioned. Yes, it is. But there's like 12 listed directors and only three quarters of it survives. Some good Samaritan has put it up on YouTube in decent quality. But yeah, no, there's a few moments where I'm like, this might be Lubitsch, but it's that scene where I'm like, okay, this is the one where I see his stamp unmistakably. Yeah, I think we may as well call it. We can declare <laughs> that one to be Lubitsch also so that you've got it mentioned in your podcast. So you're doing the entire <laughs> oeuvre. Speaking of the oeuvre, maybe before Last Command, The Scarlet Empress, what we can see in that film, Sternberg talks about crowd scenes and there's a few shots of crowds sweeping across a big Russian square with minareted buildings and gates and stuff in the back of it. And indeed, contemporary reviews talk about night shoots where Lubitsch was filming people stop to watch because of giant lights lighting up the sky. It was all on such a huge scale that even regular people who lived in Hollywood who are used to seeing stuff stopped to watch this in awe. So those giant crowd scenes must have been really something. Mm -hmm. It's weird that they would think of the square as being like a great set because it's actually the, it's the buildings that make it a great set. A square is just you could use a parking lot. Mm -hmm. But it's nicely composed and they put foreground stuff in to give it depth. So it's not just a crowd. Sternberg has a habit of also overlaying other images on it because I think the most yeah. probably impactful, at least to me, I mean, The Scarlet Empress is on Sternberg's 1934 epic. It's a highly slanderous retelling of the story of Catherine the Great. There's a title card that I can only imagine is cheeky at the beginning that is based on the diaries of Catherine the Great. And it's only a little more accurate than Forbidden Paradise. Yeah as far as Catherine the Great films go. And so The Patriot and Scarlet Empress share a cinematographer in Burt Glennon. And in the commentary, at least, Tony Raines posits that that's how stuff from The Patriot ended up in Scarlet Empress, that it might have been Burt's idea. But a reusing footage was so common yeah. at the studios such as Paramount at this time that I wouldn't be surprised if it had ended up without Burt. There's also the opening sequence, not the very opening, but when Catherine is told stories of... Oh, the torture stuff. Yeah. Now... That stuff's all non-sync. There's no sync sound on it. Mm -hmm. So I saw it and pondered, well, it's fantastically sadistic and perverse. So It's so pre-code too. Yeah, it's totally pre-code. Could that be archive? And could that be from the Patriot even? I was wondering because, I mean, there's actual nudity in that. Yes. There's explicit nudity and there's just like... I kind of have a guess that maybe some of like the wide shots and the shots with actual nudity were non-sync, but something like tying a guy to be the bauble in a bell, <laughs> that felt like distinctly Sternberg and this movie maybe. So it might be as a combo, but like that last one, I'm like, that's too grotesque not to originate from this. It was just so in keeping with like the statues. It's hard to say, isn't it? Some of it's quite expensive stuff as well. Like the bell is big. 
Mm-hmm. But then we see some bells later in the movie. So maybe they just have some big bells and he thought of an idea. That whole ending with the bells. I wouldn't be surprised if everything in that ending, except for like the close up of Marlena looking bug eyed, is stock. I think Dietrich talked about the horses riding upstairs as being yeah. an amazing moment because nobody had ever heard that sound in a film before. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, but what would you expect it to sound like? In 1934, <laughs> that's not going to amaze anybody. So evidently she remembered that happening. Mm-hmm. It seemed that's also quite an unusual thing to have in a film. I'm more just referring to like the overlays at the very end after they've yeah. ridden up. When like the 1812 overture starts and you have the bells and all the shots that are clearly from the Patriot, that all feels like something that was cooked up in an editing room. Yeah. Even the torture scene at the beginning is all done with optical printer page turning effects. So if that was somebody else's footage, he's making it his own through that device. We also get to see the famous Iron Maiden, which I've spotted in so many films. (laughs) So there's a naked girl being removed from an Iron Maiden. That's the same one that Conrad Veidt goes into at the beginning of The Man Who Laughs. And you can see it all the way along in Roger Corman's The Raven Hmm. in the 60s. So that was a much used prop. (laughs) And uh, I'm always happy to see it turn up in another film. So yeah, I guess that covers the possible Lubitsch stuff. We know that the Patriot is about a dictator who is oppressing his people. So maybe the tracking shot with the row of people being decapitated off camera, you know, maybe that could have come from the Patriot. I really suspect that like, because Sternberg has a very specific way of framing things, especially in this film. Like, I think it can't be overstated just how unique of a visual stylist Sternberg is. And a lot of those cutaways are shot with like notably longer lenses with like less fussy lighting. It leads me to think that yeah whenever we don't see like a principal on screen or one of the central sets i'm always going that could be taken from the patriot or other sources yeah and the other sternberg film that was supervised by lubitsch is devil is a woman which i thought i'd mention it because i just watched it and it's fresh in my mind one of the weird flavors of scarlet empress is the way it uses intertitles and lap dissolves and somewhat behaves like a much earlier talkie i mean it's 1934 but it's doing things that would have been quaint in 1931 and you know sound cinema evolved very rapidly when you think of it devil is a woman is done with direct cutting Mm. you're going in and out of flashbacks with hard cuts sometimes with sound bleeding in from the next scene something you just wouldn't see in other films of the period so that one is anticipating the nouvelle vague 25 years later sternberg is always out of sync with what's going on around him On the other hand, during the late 20s and early 30s, he's sort of the most exemplary Hollywood exoticism and pre-code sensibility. I mean, he's Mr. Pre-code. And Devil is a Woman comes out at 35, but is raunchy and offensive and, you know, just full of dubious material. Anya and I, when we were watching The Last Command, Anya noted how rare it felt to have such a stridently non-linear plot. Uh-huh. There's no like dissolve that tells you this is a memory. The Last Command, there's a framing story that takes place in the present and the whole middle takes place 20 years in the past and it just cuts. There's no attempt to make it look like a flashback. You actually think that what you're seeing is like set on a film set until you realize it's actually the Russian Revolution. Yeah. Which is fascinating, but let's live in Scarlet Empress for a while, because this is a film that we've talked about a lot of my favorite films on this show. I mean, we did a gratuitous Napoleon episode, of course, which obviously there's endless Lubitsches that are among my favorite films. But the Scarlet Empress might be my favorite film to emerge from pre-code Hollywood, with the only caveat being that some don't consider it pre-code Hollywood because it came out in September when, you know, the gate slammed down in July, if we really, you know, but it kind of slipped through the cracks, at least. I mean, they somehow didn't enforce the code 
very no, they forgot. This. It's among the most <laughs> outrageous films I think to ever come out of Hollywood. Not just because of the content, but I've never seen a film. I try to express this, but the film feels impossible. <laughs> It never settles down into anything resembling conventional rhythm. I mean, von Sternberg is a filmmaker who patently throughout his career never really cared about such things as story or, you know, standard narrative pacing. But this film is like an hour and 40, 40 minute long fever dream. It's a nightmare. You know how a biopic will often start with like 10 minutes of table setting where you rocket through part of the person's life and there's no real scenes, but you're kind of getting snippets. <laughs> it's like an hour and 44 minutes of that. Yeah, it's so unconcerned with character sympathy, consistency. No. <laughs> motivation. It's just like a bunch of stuff. <laughs> exactly. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened. <laughs> but what stuff? Oh my gosh, yeah. Just the most insanely beautiful design work. Orson Welles says of something of Sternberg where he said he's just, you know, an incredibly adept practitioner of what is ultimately kitsch. <laughs> which you could say is sort of true, but it reveals Wells for all his stylistic grandeur. He's a guy very interested in content, meaning and substance and character stuff was important to Wells, even though sometimes he seems to be just obsessing over the look and style. That wasn't what was most important to him. But with Sternberg, absolutely. Sternberg had an interest in modern art. So abstraction and the idea that you're just making something beautiful. That's your job is to make a beautiful thing. His first job in movies apparently was the lab. So film was a photochemical process by which you create a work of art and a work of art is a beautiful object. And that sort of explains him other than that also his memoir explains him. I think his memoir is like a Rosetta Stone to the movies. You can actually find scenes in the movies that are versions of scenes from his life. And you can find the sources for his obsession with humiliation, which Yannings also seems to have a fascination for and got on well with that subject. The Last Command is, in a way, is all about the fall of a great man. I don't know how great he is, but he's a big, important man. Well, I think let's get into The Last Command in a second. We'll run Scarlet Empress dry first. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's a few more things to talk about here. I think one is that, I mean, Hans Dreyer does uncredited production design work. And what production design? Yeah. You have an at the time obscure studio employee named Peter Babush handling the statues and their collaboration on all this. I mean, it is one of the most sacrilegious, <laughs> like hauntingly, like I've had these statues that come throughout the film. I mean, the film is set in this cartoon version of Imperial Russia. Everything is just, I mean, the film is downright offensive to Russians. <laughs> It basically treats Russia as this horrific backwater wherein almost everything is a corruption of some, you know, religious icon and people torture each other for fun, essentially. And it's at a certain point led by a mad king who instigates a reign of terror. And that's all expressed in these statues and even the size of the doors where everyone feels like dolls in a playhouse that's too big for them. It's a nightmare. And Sternberg describes himself wafting around the set with a can of aluminum spray, spraying things to make them shiny. So just he could add highlights. Like, so he's fully involved in the art direction, although he couldn't have made, nobody else could have made those sculptures. Mm -hmm. But they're obviously what he wanted. And shooting things through veils and different kinds of scrims and different layers of diffusion and smoke. 
Devil's Women takes that even further. Everything is filmed through six layers of crap. It's amazing. I can't wait to watch it. And Lubitsch had become production head at Paramount at the time that Devil's Woman was being made. And he was already clearly watching other directors' films at this time. When Sternberg was finishing Scarred Empress in 34, Lubitsch saw it and chastised Sternberg for, you know, blowing a bunch of the studio's money on those giant epic crowd scenes. He'd taken those shots from The Patriot, or he says from a Lubitsch film. And it's definitely The Patriot. Yeah, has to be. And so Lubitsch didn't fail to recognize his own epic. Yeah, now do we believe that? <laughs> I think it's worth noting here that Sternberg's autobiography is notoriously fast and loose with facts. <laughs> I believe some of it. But yes, Louise Brooks is a great commentator on all things Hollywood, said she was fascinated by the book. And what I always want to ask is, why was this book written? <laughs> In this case, it's perfectly obvious. This book was written so that Sternberg could say, it's me. It's not Dietrich. It's me. I did that. And accrue for himself the credit, which he felt was being given unfairly to Dietrich. Dietrich, of course, always praised Sternberg and said she owed everything to him and that she was nothing before Sternberg. But Sternberg seems to have resented that also. <laughs> he only refers to her once by name in the entire book. He calls her that woman. Yeah. And he says that I taught her everything. I certainly didn't teach her to talk about me. <laughs> Just a bitter old queen, but fascinating and at times even sympathetic. There were people who liked him. Clive Brooke liked him. <laughs> Pybrook was able to be amused by his awful qualities, and so he could forgive them. He said Sternberg could be almost human, <laughs> which not many other people saw that side of him. And he would deny credit to everyone from writers to production designers. And apparently, I mean, again, everything around von Sternberg, you have to asterisk with what might be apocryphal. I mean, there's been figures that have admitted to making up stories about him in revenge for how intolerably tiresome he was. <laughs> And, I mean, Burt Glennon apparently was fired off of Devil is a Woman for winding his watch at the wrong time. He just seemed like a miserable man to work for. <laughs> and Devil is a Woman is probably the only film of that era that the cinematography is credited to the director. Yeah. Darren Burke seems to have shot it. He also says in his book that since there's a scene where Cesar Romero pops balloons positioned around Marlene Dietrich's head using a pea shooter. Sternberg trained himself to operate the camera with one hand and one eye and operate an air rifle with the other. And he's popping balloons uh. inches from Dietrich's <laughs> expensive face. Now, when you see the movie, you will see that we never see a balloon burst in the same shot as her. So if he was doing that, it was for absolutely no reason. We do see a balloon pop in a shot with an extra who is not an expensive player. And I'm perfectly capable of believing that Sternberg was aiming an air rifle a little to the left of her, because why wouldn't he? It's the sort of thing he might enjoy. But yeah, he definitely plays fast and loose with the truth. I believe him when he says that his father beat him with a belt and made him kiss the belt, because that feels like a psychological explanation of, of quite a yes. lot of what's going on. There's a hell of a lot to psychoanalyzing von Sternberg. He's working with and a lot of these things, Jules Firthman, a very odd screenwriter who's also associated with Howard Hawks. Mm. As much as Lubitsch and Sternberg are closely connected but seem completely incompatible, Hawks and Sternberg were closely connected and again, don't seem anything like one another. But the beginning of Devil's a Woman looks like the beginning of Scarface. Lots of tracking shots and streamers hanging in front of the lens. And... Hawks claims that he's the one who told Sternberg that he should dress Dietrich as a man in Morocco. And Hawks says he likes Sternberg, but he had no idea why, because the man was not likable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
And hawks maybe has a certain cold, surly quality, which maybe could have related. But, you know, hawks projects warmth in his movies in a way that Sternberg not so much. No, it's interesting to consider. I mean, Sternberg is a useful kind of mirror to Lubitsch, where one of the common refrains of this podcast, especially from the people I've talked to that are intimately familiar with his whole body of work, they take heart in the fact that with Lubitsch, his personality and work really informed each other, where you can see the humanistic people person that he was in his work and vice versa. Yeah. And with <laughs> with Sternberg, likewise, you can see the rather misanthropic kind of drama king <laughs> he was and the control freak, too. I mean, every single element of his films is just clearly micromanaged to the last inch in the way that Lubitsch rarely cared about. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lubitsch was a specific artist, but he picked his fights. Yeah, I think he was particular about how his performers performed. Yeah. And would sometimes act out for them the oh, way he frequently. wanted it I think almost every bit of praise and every complaint I have heard about Lubitsch's directing style with actors is the exact same thing. It's either he told me exactly what to do and acted out the scene and I loved it or he acted out the scene and I hated it or I didn't care much for it in the case of Adolf Manjou who like much preferred Chaplin's style. Interesting. Louis Brooks says of Manjou he would act in numbers. He would say, okay, now I'm going to do Lubitsch number one. <laughs> totally tactical, no emotion, just a series of mannerisms that he picked up and that he could turn on and off. Yeah. But evidently, he apparently acquired a couple of moves from the bitch. It's interesting because I think he was simultaneously like, it seemed to be he just preferred Chaplin's style, but he and the bitch were actually friends. In the biographies, there's numerous like stories about, you know, Adolf Monchou at Lubitsch's house and, you know, interacting with his kids and they seem to get on at least. This is a good kind of, I think, point to get into the origin of The Last Command, which is, in my view, maybe the most interesting story of this whole kind of milieu we're in today. I've taken all my notes from the Scott Iman book, which lays out the chain of events very clearly. Apparently, there was a Russian restaurant that Lubitsch went to at least once in New York, run by a man who called himself General Ladiensky. Later on, while directing Student Prince in Old Heidelberg, he noticed an extra in a costume, and it was that same man, the proprietor of this restaurant. And Lodiansky regaled him with the story about how he used to be an actual Russian general. And then Lubitsch thought, wow, what an incredible idea for a story, for a film. And he shares it to Emil Yannings. Of course, Emil being Emil, he's a man of gray morality at the best of times. Lubitsch only hears secondhand that Jennings is working on a new film about this Russian general who becomes an extra and von Sternberg's directing it. And so, you know, Jennings obviously kind of stole Lubitsch's idea. However, Lubitsch got his revenge in his own funny way because Jennings, Sternberg and Paramount end up getting sued by someone else who had claimed to have originated the story. Um, it's probably just a, you know, a similar tale. Essentially, Paramount says it was Jennings' idea. Jennings says, oh no, it was Lubitsch's idea. And Lubitsch went, who, me? <laughs> um, and Paramount had to settle. And so that's the origin of Last Command, which is, I mean, I only watched this movie for the first time last week and I was blown away by it, completely blown away. It seems like a really good Sternberg subject. Not so much a Lubitsch subject, but it would have been fascinating to see what he would do with it. I think it would have been a comedy or at least a tragic comedy with Lubitsch. In Sternberg's hands, it's this grand old, very campy melodrama. Yeah. It's a great structure and a great idea that somebody is performing in Hollywood as an extra, seen from their own former grandeur in life, real events. It's another movie that many Hollywood films at the time portray the Russian Revolution in the most wildly inaccurate and stupid terms. It's slanderous to all sides somehow. <laughs> it's strange that they were so fascinated with it because the Russian Revolution, given that Hollywood was unlikely to side with the communists and you couldn't really side with the Romanov. 
They don't make good heroes in their own story. So you end up with, you know, something that's a bit complex for Hollywood. Yeah. They did, you know, their Rasputin movie, the, the Yellow Ticket. They have to put across the idea that the czarist system is completely intolerable, but that the communist system that's going to replace it isn't good either. That leads you to a somewhat gloomy, no happy ending possible kind of place. And you see it in the Barrymore movie with that setting. You see it in all of them. That The only hope is to flee. Well, Barrymore in Rasputin. Yeah. Yeah. The only hope is to get out of Russia, basically. That's the happy ending. And this one, though, he gets out of Russia and has a miserable go. And the little bits we see of the life of an extra in Hollywood are fairly horrifying, actually. Yeah. At the end of that movie, William Powell had it put in his contract that he would never have to work with Sternberg again. <laughs> Sternberg told Yannings that you're a diabolical hazard to any aesthetic undertaking. And I wish you well in any subsequent ventures, but not with me. At which point, flash forward not too far, and Sternberg has been prescribed a European holiday for his health. You definitely need a break, otherwise you're going to crash and burn. And he's approached by Yannings to do the Blue Angel, and he accepts. Hmm. Which, again, makes no sense, but that's Sternberg. Yeah, and I mean, your comment about the subject matter requiring complexity, that was one of the things that actually stuck out to me in the film, is that the characters are so full of interesting contradictions, because mm-hmm. you have three principles in this. You have Emil Yannings, the general, who, again, the film has a framing story where it begins in the present with Yannings as a destitute extra. He gets cast as a general. And then when he gets the makeup on, the film flashes back without being explicit about it, actually, to the Russian Revolution. For a moment, I thought, oh, wow, this is quite a movie within the movie. But no, it's the actual... And it turns out the man, the director who cast him did so because he recognized him. And the director was a he was a Russian revolutionary, although it seems that he wasn't all that involved. There's some complexity there. And kind of in between them is this woman played by Evelyn Brent, who is initially sympathetic to the revolutionaries, but ends up falling in love with Yannings, which is the toughest sell of the film. Yeah. And ends up actually saving his life at the end. And he goes back to Hollywood and ends up in his big speech that he has to give on the film set playing the general. He puts so much into it that he has a heart attack and dies. And that's the film. Yeah. Also, he's got this head shaking twitch. Yes. This tremor that we see in Hollywood. And the story of the flashback is the story of how he acquires that. So it's almost a Freudian backstory. And what I found in the backstory, at least, was that in most films, in most stories, the idea is you create a character and then you can basically understand what the character is doing based on those initial conceptions, right? In this film, I found myself constantly floored by, and Sternberg does this later, especially in Dishonored with the Dietrich character. He's so good at presenting you a character and then having that character do something totally out of character or presented in a way that feels discontinuous and then basically throwing it to you, make sense of this. That happens repeatedly with Yannings, who starts the film as this absolutely hateful character who seems to just be like, basically does what the Tsar wants and will, you know, it's just a cog in the undermining of the Tsar's regime. And yet he loves Russia. Those two things exist at once. And then you have the Evelyn Brent character, who is a revolutionary who then basically plays a double agent, makes herself one and tries to kill Yannings, but ends up so overcome by his love of Russia that she can't bring and falls in love with him. It genuinely keeps you on your toes as to her affiliation. And then the William Powell character, same thing at the end, where everything you're taught about him is undermined. And that's the last beat of the film. It's fascinating. I can imagine Sternberg looking at these kind of characters and go, well, why not have him do the opposite to what he's been doing all along and betray everything he apparently stood for, or at least run counter to it. That's what I'd do. I think his perversity is so great that he projects it onto pretty much all of his characters. Yeah, he's quite something. 
one of the stories in his memoir is about swimming as a kid and running into a bunch of naked girls who were also having a swim and they caught him and teased him and humiliated him and he fled in tears, which becomes the beginning of Blonde Venus, only completely swapped around to make it a delightful erotic encounter in which the men are completely in control, the clothed men and the naked girls. But he tells us the truth in his memoir, or we assume it's the truth because it's not flattering to him, but who knows? But it certainly seems to relate to that in his films. If he's interested in motivation, he's interested in it in a way that's the reverse of regular Hollywood writing. He's not interested in consistent motivation. No, that's basically what the entire tension in Dishonored, where, and actually Blonde Venus too has this a lot, where in Dishonored, I mean, Dietrich plays a sex worker who is kind of conscripted into working for the Austro-Hungarian government to spy on their enemies in Russia. And throughout the film, she does things that only make sense if your interpretation of her character is wildly different than the interpretation that the first half hour of the film, for example, lends. You know, she makes one fateful decision that essentially to give her life away. And there's no... I don't want to spoil that film because I think truly the tension is important, but there's no logical explanation for what she does aside from that her character, you know, maybe just wants to die in an operatic way, for example. Yeah. Unwell talks about it in his memoir. He was a Sternberg fan, and yet all the references to Sternberg in the memoir are trash talking him. <laughs> He had a friend who devised a system whereby he claimed he could predict the ending of any Hollywood movie from a description of the opening scene. A Paramount exec challenged him on this and said, oh, yeah, that can't be true. Well, look, I just saw the most amazing film last night and nobody could ever have predicted the ending. And here's how it begins. And the guy immediately says, here's how it will end. And he's correct. It's made slightly easier for him, I think, because it's a Mata Hari. It's a Roman Clay version of Mata Hari. So if you recognize the story source, also if you recognize the influence, even pre-code of the Hayes office, you might guess how that movie would have to end. Yes. But it's very well done. It's the most she-she scene of its kind. <laughs> you know, these military affairs are not usually so frou-frou and bizarre. Well, I mean, at the end when she's given the last minute reprieve and her response is to fix her makeup. Yeah. That to me is like, that's the iconic Dietrich Sternberg scene that sums up what they were doing to me better than any other. Uh But yeah, I think your description of someone who praises this whole kind of dynamic that everyone around Sternberg seems to have of both recognizing his talent while just mercilessly assuring us that he is completely tiresome. Late in his career, he was doing something called Macau, which ended up some of it reshot by Nick Ray. So you've got two very interesting filmmakers making a not so interesting film. It does have some recognizably Sternbergian bits, but he so unendeared himself to Jane Russell and Robert Mitchum that they took to performing mean pranks on him. Robert Mitchum on location collapsed a tent on Sternberg as he was changing into his pajamas and smeared Limburger cheese on the engine of his car so that it would stink when it heated up. <laughs> and when Sternberg had a rule about no food on set, they had a whole picnic brought in and laid out on the studio floor. And there's a sense that Sternberg's sadism was actually tied to masochism and he was inviting this. I'll be mean to people and they'll be mean to me, which is what I want. And I'm not sure, but it's what it sort of feels like to me. On Shanghai Gesture, he was filming from a camera crane and he'd throw a single silver dollar down to any extra who did something that pleased it. Mm. Lots of weird behavior, even by Hollywood standards. And Clive Brook, they were extras together for a while. Sternberg did all kinds of jobs and he was apparently a movie extra at one point. So that's interesting in the light of Last Command. Hmm. I guess they were rooming together because one morning Sternberg's looking at himself in the mirror and he says to Brook, which is more repulsive with the mustache or without it? And Brook says, why do you want to be repulsive? 
Well, if they hate you, at least they remember you. <laughs> that should have been the title of his autobiography. Yeah. Uh, that's, that feels like the running <laughs> theme of there, or one of them. This is an unusual kind of diversion for the podcast and that we're kind of almost running through the entirety of one director's career. And so one question I have for you is, I'm going to assume that some people listening to this have seen some Von Sternbergs, but for those who haven't, had the pleasure of watching his films. And I mean, for all we like are having a laugh at how clearly he's not one of the heroes I want to meet, but <laughs> his films to me are just totally singular. His body of work, I mean, of the seven of his films I've seen, it's to me among the most fascinating and compelling of any director I've encountered in any context. Is there a Von Sternberg film that you would recommend as, you know, okay, so if you got to start with one, make it this one? Difficult because people are either going to like them or not yeah. or love part of them and hate part of them or be indifferent to. He's so peculiar. Underworld's a really good one. It's the, sort of the rebirth of the gangster movie. It's a little bit more crowd pleasing in some respects. Sternberg offended Ben Hecht by adding a couple of details and he says, I had the hero bend a dime with his bare hands to show that he was strong and I had him give some milk to a kitten to show that he had a good heart. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that Sternberg would normally avoid, you feel, you know, doing something to make you like a character. Yeah. But it's really good and incredibly violent and anarchic and comes out of Ben Heck saying it was so boring writing for Hollywood, not only because of the censorship, not only the heroine, but also the hero had to be virgins. His solution was to make a film entirely about bad guys. So you get the reinvention of the gangster movie. It's pretty great. And for people who find Clive Brook astonishingly charmless <laughs> and uh, unappealing in Shanghai Express, he's really good and he's likable in this. I would just say that for our North American listeners, the Criterion Collection has actually put out, this is not like our Lubitsch season of silence where we've gone through and there's been maybe two decent versions publicly available. Luckily, Sternberg's surviving works have been very well taken care of. And Criterion has actually put out two great box sets. There's the Silent Classics by Josef von Sternberg, which has Underworld, The Last Command and Docks of New York. Two of which I've seen, both are incredible. And then you have Dietrich and von Sternberg in Hollywood, which collects their six Hollywood films. And that set is stunning. I think in Europe, Indicator put out a set that is now out of print. You can still get them individually, though, yes. And they're planning on collecting, collecting them all. They're all good. I mean, I think Don Venus is like the least attractive story to me. Shanghai Express is maybe the most straightforwardly compelling story. Although you do have a really unappetizing leading man. Yeah. <laughs> impossible to care about him, but it doesn't matter much. And Scarlet Empress and Devil as a Woman are the most insane and most out there. Devil as a Woman is a version of the same story that became Bunuel's uh, obscure object of desire. Mm -hmm. And it's about a woman who behaves completely inconsistently. So it's kind of the first time in his films where that owned. That's kind of, it's the point and you can't miss it and you can't think that it could possibly be a mistake. It's definitely what the film's about. With Scarlet Empress, for me, I mean, I will always be grateful to Ernst Lubitsch for helping me to see the light on good taste and manners <laughs> in cinema, but I still think I'm at heart a maximalist and the Scarlet Empress is like, it's still in the second most maximalist film we've talked about on the show, the most being Napoleon, which is I think never to be topped, but it's up there and it is among the most delirious trips I've ever had. And if anyone wants a good double feature, I mean, watch the Scarlet Empress and the Merry Widow back to back. That's a fantastic set of films because they're both doing similar things in terms of satirizing Eastern European cultures to greater or lesser sensitivity. They're kind of the most stylish, maximalist films either director either ever made, and they pair well. So if you ever need a double feature, I can't recommend that little pairing enough. Definitely. I love the Merry Widow. It's almost like 
that one is the return to the operetta films. Yes. A couple of years on, and it's the last thing in that style. And it's in a way that makes it a little bit like The Patriot seems to be a return to the historical epic. With new lessons learned, because I think yeah. that The Merry Widow is, it's actually my favorite pre-code Lubitsch. And I don't mean that as a slight against his other masterpieces from the pre-code. It's just so good. It's I've watched it 10 times in the past few years and I can't get enough of it. Yeah. Oh, it's super great. Yeah. Well, are there any stones we haven't turned? I mean, obviously there, I mean, we could do a whole podcast series on the works of Joseph von Sternberg. Yeah. But the other thing that stops me is that I don't know how many times I can have the conversation about how miserable he was, but <laughs> or how miserable he was to be around. Are there any stones we haven't turned that you think are essential? No, I'd say his book is well worth reading, despite that what would seem to be a character that you don't want to spend too much time with. He's a fascinating SOB. <laughs> In his own memoir, he's almost as peculiar a character as the ones he presents on screen. And you notice the Scarlet Empress, there's a famous apocryphal story about Catherine the Great that she died attempting to copulate with a horse. And uh, obviously the movie was not going to include that scene, but the number of horse references in that movie, and they're all pointed, they're all deliberate. You know, it's not like they've done this innocently. They're all nudges to... Those who are in the know. I didn't know that story, but there are like numerous scenes where like the Lady Eve style where a horse is just in the back intruding on the scene. Yes. And there's like thrust into marriage as a brood mare yeah. to a madman. The weird romantic lead guy suggests bedding down in the stables when they first meet. It's just full of outrageous ink. Not just the sadism, but the bestiality. <laughs> You're definitely meant to see that as being in her future. Well, I mean, Sternberg prints the legend, uh, as he always does, you know. Misprints it, yeah. Misprints it because it's more fun. Well, thank you so much for joining me again on this, David. I would not have had the guts to pursue an episode about the Patriot had you not suggested it. So thanks for adding another week to the podcast. (laughs) My pleasure. (laughs) Next week, Bram Reuter joins us to discuss eternal love. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. Sound effects taken from the Sunset Editorial Libraries, courtesy of the USC Cinema and Archive.org. Griffin Shield was our dialogue editor for this episode. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I have weapons that are far more powerful than any political machine.